0: Hi guys, welcome back to our True Crime podcast, Don't Blame the Mum, I'm Hannah.
1: And I am Kate.
0: Yes, and it is 2024. Yeah,
1: welcome to
0: 2024 everybody. So crazy, can't believe it. This is the first time we have recorded this year.
1: Yeah, true. Yeah. That is correct. It I, is the first time we've yeah. recorded. This and you'd think we'd be
0: feeling really fresh and like, you know, awesome, but I really feel unfresh. I feel you? anything,
1: but <laughs> but I'm sick as a dog again and it's so frustrating. I literally, the last time we recorded, I was sick as well. Oh,
0: yeah, I just actually remembered Yeah,
1: and then I was better over Christmas and then now I'm sick again. Okay,
0: are you trying to say that I make you sick?
1: <laughs> That's exactly what I was Basically getting her, at. Basically,
0: yeah. every time I see you, I'm really ill.
1: yeah. This is all your fault, you're right.
0: <laughs> I've given you the lurgy, I'm sorry. Well, it's good to have you back. You look, you look nice, if that's any consolation. Thank you, so do you. Oh, I don't know about that. Um, thanks for lying, but...
1: <laughs> I'm really working on my lying skills. <laughs> yeah.
0: you know, it's not Just working. Practicing with you. <laughs> you, you need some more practice, love. No, but you're looking very um, Sandra D today. She's got the fluffy pink, uh, what do you call it, t-shirt on? I mean, I'm assuming it's, it's a, a, sw- a, a sweater, sweater vest. A sweater vest. It's on. like a short
1: sleeve jumper, which is kind of always... I always find these to feed the purpose of oh, having 100%. a jumper. 100%. But I then do- I'm absolutely roasting and sweating <laughs> right now. So
0: there you have it. We did have the heating on for like the last few hours, to be fair. Yeah,
1: no, heating is now off. I am way too hot. Wish I hadn't worn this woolly jumper t-shirt.
0: Well, it looks good. It was a amazing. mistake. It looks good. So how was your New Year's, your Christmas, <coughs> all that kind of stuff in 2023, way back, and let's not
1: ever talk about 2023 again. Yeah, I know, no <laughs> jokes. Um, <laughs> Christmas was amazing, so I went home to Dublin, as you know, mm-hmm. which was amazing to see my mom and my family and my friends um so it was really busy mm. mom had, had hip surgery and Aww. so yeah no she's sending love anita oh you're sweet yeah so she but she has done so well like when i like the difference from when i landed to when i left yeah. of her recovery really? was incredible oh
0: good i mean she's
1: such a uh she's just such an incredible person anyway like i mean my mom is like someone who's in the gym like five times a week oh and my god i know
0: god I'm i know really bad she's,
1: now i mean i not even a member of a gym anymore Neither am I. I was just
0: like, why am I lying to myself and spending money lying to myself? Why- I could just lie to myself without spending 80 quid a month. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? I'm so never right. going to go. I... So let's
1: be honest. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I'm actually paying for this online thing. And I can't remember the last time I've done it.
0: What, like so an online right.
1: gym? It's like an online, you know, where they do different like fitness classes and you follow uh, the yeah, class. Yeah, yeah. But sure, I can't remember the last time I did it. So you're right, I'm quitting that this month. <laughs> You are, you're welcome this is my four. <laughs> what are you doing i'm quitting the gym
0: I'm... everyone's like going for runs going to the gym yeah. like doing dry january here's We're me like the with opposite. a vodka <laughs> literally i just pulled myself a vodka i'm quitting the gym <laughs> <laughs> what else can we do
1: that's really I bad refuse for us to eat healthily <laughs> sitting no, here my eating God. S- we've
0: literally got our s- second s- bag of sweets <laughs> We just went all the way through a whole bag of Mentos. Oh, Mentos, <laughs> Mentos, better. <those> ones. <laughs> the fruit ones. The whole bag got polished off, and now we we start on the Haribo's. Oh my God, we're terrible people. Happy New Year, everyone. Well,
1: <laughs> start as you mean to continue, eh?
0: And there's me going earlier. God. I just don't understand that. Like, my skin is so bad at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> hmm, I mean, wonder what that's from. <laughs>
1: honest to God, that is actually so funny. We're, everyone else oh. is literally talking about taking up all of the things that we're talking about <laughs> quitting.
0: Who's going to jump on our bandwagon, guys. Who yeah. else is doing stuff that's really bad for them? Let's the all make a pact
1: together. Yeah. That instead of trying to better ourselves...
0: Let's just not lie to ourselves. We're just okay? going to
1: continue down the destructive yeah. path that we're already yeah. on.
0: And any of those people I see <laughs> pretending to go to the gym, you're all liars, okay?
1: <laughs> you, you do see... I'm not falling for it. I am seeing all the people, you know, the streets are packed with yeah. people running and all do that. you know what really
0: annoys me? And I think I've said this before and I'm going to damn well say it again. When I see guys, right, and I'm saying guys because I only see guys doing it, um, walking along with like huge puffer jackets and like scarves, someone even had gloves on the other day with bare legs. <laughs> I see it all the time in the winter and I'm like, you're literally in like shorts. wrapped yeah. up to the nines, the top half, and then your legs are always bare. It drives me mad. Why? Why?
1: put some trousers on. I don't know. Maybe they don't feel the cold through their legs. But, but not
0: even gym gear. Literally just shorts. I'm like, what are you doing? Where are they going in their I shorts? I have no idea. No idea. But I tell you what, if they think they're going into pub like that, I'd be the first one to complain. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, Can't, guys. Come to the pub. It's fine. Can it's speak to your
1: manager, please. <laughs> yes. I've got to complain. I would
0: write a strongly worded letter. <laughs> <laughs> I'd write a very unsavory note to the managers. No, I'm kidding. But I have to say, um, Kate actually like really sneakily managed to swangle me into taking her decorations down
1: I've been, I've done a really good job today. I managed to somehow convince <laughs> Hannah to take down my Christmas decorations whilst I was setting up everything else. I
0: was just thinking about it a minute ago and I was like, hang on a minute. She really like sneakily like manipulated me into that. I was like sitting here ready to record. And she's like, oh, you know what? Yeah, the, those those star decorations just look really crap in the background. Oh, I wish you could take them down. <laughs> I was like, do you want me to take them down, Kate? Didn't realize it would take me about half an hour because they're all tangled in like a big ball of barbed wire. Oh, God, that was the most stressful thing I've done in 2024. But well, I really
1: appreciate your help with the well, de-Christmasing yeah, my house. You're not welcome,
0: okay? <laughs> I can see them over
1: there in the corner and I'm just like looking at them resentfully. That's so funny, yeah. So, Hannah's just come around to mine just to take down my Christmas decorations. Yeah, she'll That's, send me packing in a minute. Yeah. I mean, yeah. All under the guise of doing the podcast. Yeah.
0: What did you do on Friday, Hannah? Oh, I just took down Irish's decorations. <laughs> I've just had dog's body. It's fine. I'll be painting her toenails later. <laughs> you know how it is. Oh, gosh. So tell me about your Christmas, Hannah. What did you get up to? What? It's weird. I feel like it went so quickly. I, I, You know, I love Christmas. I was so excited about playing all the songs, like, over and over again for hours.
1: Since, like, October. Yeah,
0: literally. And I was like, can't wait to Christmas Eve, can't wait Christmas Day. And now I'm like, it's all gone really fast. So it was really nice. Um, You know, well, Christmas Eve went out with all the old crew, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people you know, Um. Went out locally for drinks and everything. Christmas day had lots of lovely food. um Where did we you have your Christmas dinner? Christmas dinner at my my father in laws. Oh nice. And then we went over to see my mum quickly, good old Jan, mm-hmm. and then saw some of my sisters, and then went to my sister Rachel's in laws. So I basically gate crashed their Christmas. You went to um, is it Lee's? Yeah, family? Oh, Lee's nice. families. They. I was like hi. <laughs> I'm coming to your house for Christmas. Oh, amazing. No, no, Was it was like I think they were like, oh, great, oh, great.
1: <laughs> All of the sisters no, are here. They're Fun so times. nice.
0: They, they do put on a lovely, um, lovely, you know, like snacks, really good drinks. Which be a beautiful house. I love their house. Yeah, really nice. So I did that. I was kind of everywhere actually at Christmas. Yeah, then look at you, just... Boxing Day. Me and Racky, like who's another mutual friend of ours. We went to a really cute pub in Wimbledon. Then to Harry's mum's for some lovely food as well. Some Stevens's Day dinner. Yeah. So so I feel like I've seen everyone basically over Christmas, but then it was just gone. And I, and then the next day I was back at work and I was like, oh, oh. and I was like, can we play Christmas That's songs rubbish. please? I know, I know. But I still played Christmas songs anyway, okay. all the way up until New Year's. Heck, I might even want to play one after this. Who knows? <laughs> you rebel. No, I know. I won't really. I promise. But no, looking forward to January, I think it, well, it is January. <laughs> looking forward to the year ahead. I think it's going to be a very good year. Yeah. You know. We're looking
1: for a great dump him the mom 2024 year. Yeah.
0: We're going to really go f- full throttle, you know. Uh Still <laughs> know what we're going to do. Yeah, but <laughs>
1: Yeah, we're planning we're having a big year. <laughs> so another yeah. thing that happened which I believe that you are aware happened oh, was that I was thrown a surprise birthday party while I was at home in Dublin. Uh What? I was not aware of this. Well, Harry was aware. Wait, what? Sean threw me a surprise birthday party in Dublin. So I thought I was going down to meet my, well, I was going down with my mom to meet our my auntie and my uncle. Yeah. My auntie's also my godmother. And Sean was coming from the airport that day. And uh, I thought we were going for dinner down in one of the local restaurants. Yeah. And when I arrived, there's like 20 of my friends sitting at a table. Stop lying. You don't I have 20 swear. friends. I, I know.
0: <laughs> no, no. I believe it's people sitting at the, the table. Exaggeration. <laughs> I just don't believe there were Two, two <laughs>
1: friends. <now. laughs>
0: all two of them crowded around. Paid to be
1: out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he had uh, got in touch with all my friends from my area, friends from school, oh, everything. So amazing. I
0: did not know this at all.
1: That is so funny because when Harry came in earlier, the first thing he said to me was, Did you have your surprise party? And I went. So he
0: must have told Harry.
1: Yeah. And oh my god. And Harry, Harry didn't, didn't tell you.
0: <gasps> that is so Harry. Weird. We're so proud of you. I am so proud of him. <laughs> he has the biggest mouth in the world. Like, you like he is like gossip girl but in guy version <laughs> times 100. So I am actually really impressed. Yeah. Because well, there's a surprise for you. Oh my god. That is okay, that's great. Now now I feel like I can tell him more stuff. Mm. <laughs> so did you have a good surprise party? Oh my
1: god, it was so amazing. It was so wonderful. So some of the girls because I don't get home as much as I'd like to, mm. quite often you're trying to see like family and mom and whatever. Yeah. And people who are just available more. Like most of my friends have children and stuff. Mm. But I saw friends that I hadn't seen in ages, like since before a bloody COVID, I haven't seen some of them. So it was really amazing to catch up and see all those people. It was really cute and I was really shocked and really surprised and it was awesome.
0: That is so nice. I did not know that. I hadn't seen any pictures or anything. I tried FaceTiming this one on flipping New Year's Eve. Did I get an answer? Did I heck? I mean, we didn't even go out New Year's Eve. We stayed in and watched Shawshank Redemption. Okay, well fine, I'll let you off then, because that's a great movie. Yeah,
1: and then, <laughs> guess what we watched afterwards? So, Shawshank Redemption ended... Forrest Gump. No, and, oh. then the, and then the fireworks and stuff are on. No, 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 it's dark. And then we watched Silence of the Lambs.
0: Oh. <laughs> like, what? Again, that is a great movie. Okay. I
1: hadn't actually seen it in years, so I was it was actually good to watch it again. That is a very, very good
0: film. It, it was loosely based on Ed Gein. Yeah. Um... Who else? Oh God! I Somebody else. Can't I can't even think. You. I actually haven't seen it in absolutely either. Had I, and it is, it has stood the test of time. Yeah, I remember watching it when I was way too young to watch it, like same. I did with all of the movies. Mm. I just gravitated towards all the films I shouldn't have watched, like It and Oh my God, it's and so no, so. I know. I mean, that today, this day, till still terrifying. I can't me. watch it. It's, it's horrible. But um, and also Silence of the Lambs. Like I was always like, Mom, can I stay up and watch this? And now, look, here we are talking about true crime a few years down the line. <laughs> no.
1: Um, who knew that would, that would be what happened? But yeah, great movie. But we ended up up until like half two in the morning just watching that. And then we were like, oh, happy New Year. <laughs> I don't think I can watch movies anymore. I don't
0: think I have the attention to that. I don't think though. you could
1: ever watch a movie. You'd fall asleep.
0: Yeah, that's true. I do like to sleep early. But saying that, I stayed out on New Year's Eve till 1.30 a.m.
1: Oh, my God. I know. I remember when you used to be cool.
0: Well, really, I don't remember that. <laughs> Tell me about
1: it. <laughs> I remember <laughs> refresh when, my memory.
0: When you could stay out late, and you were oh, fun. No, but no, that's actually pretty
1: good for you these days. Yeah, that
0: is. And also, I, I just can't watch a film. Like every time we're like, right, let's sit down and watch a movie. After 10 minutes, I'm like scrolling on TikTok or I'm like Googling I something. Know. Or... Well, do you know
1: what? Actually, both of our phones died. Mine died at like half nine and his died by 10 so minutes that's later. that's why you ignored me. So, well, yeah, we literally, <laughs> both of us were like, no, I'm not going upstairs to find a charger. So oh. we'll just have no phones.
0: Well, fair enough, you know. As long as you had a great time. Yeah. That's the most important thing. But anyway, shall we maybe talk about some I don't know, crime today? Oh my
1: God. <laughs> Listen, there was a lot of skipping to be done there. If you're not I interested know. in hearing about our Christmas and I New skipped Year's. skipped an
0: hour. Like, God, there's still fucking <laughs> going on. Shut we better, up. We better check the camera on that,
1: <laughs> the battery on that camera. Are we sure we still have enough left?
0: Sorry guys. We got a little, we haven't seen each other for a few weeks. We've got a little, uh, carried away. A little carried away there. Exactly. But before we do crack on, I do want to do a few shout outs. Oh great. Yeah. Cause we've had some really nice stuff. Whilst, really really uh, nice work so here's a few of them we've got Neetzy in Kansas and she said that we are her favorite podcast and she said that she, she- sent the most beautiful message oh, she's so, so lovely so lovely so nice and she said she listens to a lot of true crime podcasts you know um, as do I as do you because we Love a bit of true crime, but um, she said we're her new favorite number one, so Yay! super proud. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much, it's yeah. And um, Breezy, she uh did a little uh, shout out, she was listening to us whilst doing the cleaning and everything. And she said that we're one of her fave podcasts as well. Yay, um, I you. love listening to podcasts while I'm cleaning. I literally mm. had a thorough deep clean of the house. Okay, actually, no, this is really boring. I always talk about cleaning my house. Maybe you should start oh, a cleaning dear. podcast, maybe I should. It would be very boring. (laughs) like my like just like me in general um and then we have tracy ray and she sent us a really really nice message as well and she actually said um hannah i just want to say that i get the bundy obsession Thank you, Tracy Ray. Um, and I said, well, maybe we should start a support group or something. Yeah, because, maybe. You know, but she said that, you know, she'd have fallen for his like, you know, tricks and charms as well. Um, but I think that's because we're nice people. Like yeah. if I saw somebody with a broken arm trying to get
1: something into the boot of their car,
0: 100%. Of 100%,
1: like, course I can help you. I would
0: say now I would. I would think Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy, now Ted Bundy. Now you just Bundy. kick them in the knees and run. Would now you? I probably would, and then I'd probably be like try and break this, break it off their arm to see if it's real. And then when it <laughs> is, I'll be like, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry! Don't arrest me!" <laughs> <laughs> Such is my uh, paranoid mind. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I wouldn't do that. But I would definitely think twice now. But anyway, Tracy, thank you so much for that message. And we've got um, House Ren. Um, she's from Calgary in Canada. Mm-hmm. We are going to be doing some more Canadian cases coming up this year, you know, so we haven't we've got you Canada, you know, no. don't I you mean, worry, you've got plenty of serial killers for us to go through. We've got a nice little list going on. And um, she really enjoys the podcast as well. So thank you so much, guys. And um, we will shut up now. Well, we won't shut up. We're going to talk about something else. Yeah,
1: We'll <laughs> stop talking about ourselves for a change.
0: Exactly. So we're going to talk about the case we have this week. Uh, firstly, I do want to do a trigger warning. Oh my
1: God, well done for remembering. It's been such a long time. I can't even
0: write that down and I actually can't believe I just remembered. But yes, trigger warning because it is pretty, you know, as they all are, there is going to be, you know, sexual abuse. There is going to be rape, murder. Um, It's quite harrowing, a lot of this, you know, kidnap, Mm. everything. So just do be aware before you proceed. And on that note, let's talk about it because this week, Kate, guess where we're going in the world?
1: Australia. We're
0: going down under. (laughs) Yes, I finally got that in there. (laughs) So the names David and Catherine Burney still resonate and strike fear uh, in the hearts of Australians and people around the world to this day. This ruthless and twisted killer couple from Perth, Australia, kidnapped and murdered four women in their home in 1986 to fulfill their own six sexual needs. (coughs) They were only captured after one lucky intended fifth victim managed to jump out of a window and escape. This brave young woman's heroic act exposed the Burnies as two of Australia's most evil killers. Also referred to as the Morehouse Murders and by law enforcement as the most violent couple in their country's history, their sadistic crimes went down as some of the most shocking and depraved acts ever carried out, not just by one killer, but two. The meeting of these twisted minds formed a deadly combination, leaving death and horror in their wake. This is episode 46, David and Catherine Burney, The Morehouse Murders.
1: She's eating a haribo I'm over there. i miscalculated how much time <laughs> I had to eat that
0: it's not, it's not one of my super, super long intros today. You can tell I'm a bit rusty, can't you? <laughs>
1: David John Burney was born on the 16th of February, 1951 in Perth in Western Australia. He was the eldest of five siblings born to parents Johnny and Margaret Burney. The family grew up in the suburbs of Perth in a town called in a town called Wattle Grove. So David's family life was very chaotic growing up. His mother Margaret was described as unkempt and generally a very unpleasant woman. She was known to neglect her children, leaving them filthy, dirty, malnourished, and unloved. Was mm. quite often what was said. Um, she's known. She's also known to solicit herself to pay for. Kind of anything, re- varying from like taxi rides to maybe alcohol. Oh, you mean like solic-
0: as in As sec- in sexual, sexual things. Yeah. In oh, organize, okay. Yeah.
1: Right. Uh, doing that kind of stuff in order just to pay for things. So Margaret also struggled with alcohol addiction and was known to often fly into a rage if the children were misbehaving or annoying her, especially if she was drunk. Mm-hmm. Her, um, his father, by all accounts, was not much better, and also an alcoholic. So people who knew the family knew this about them. Yeah. But there was kind of a darker side to it, even as well as there was also rumors about incest in the family. Mm. So, as is quite often the case with children who grow up in these types of dysfunctional families, David did not have many friends, and I think we've talked about this before, where you know. Kids kinda know when all the kids are in a really bad situation. Because they kind of single them out as
0: different. Yeah. Because their behaviour is different yeah. to kids who are in a functional family you know, household and stuff. And so they make them easy target. Like Willie Picton.
1: Well, I was just thinking about him. Yeah. yeah like Willie Picton for sure. The pig farmer. Where,
0: and a similar thing where they were
1: already unkept and not well mm-hmm. kept like just not well looked after. Yeah. Um so he didn't have many friends. However, he did form a friendship with a young girl in the area who was growing up in another very difficult environment. So her name was Catherine Harrison. And she's going to become a prominent part of this story. But Hannah, you're going to tell us more on that a little bit yes, later Yes, I shall. So David's teachers at school noticed that David was showing a lot of troublesome behavior while he was growing up. So he was easy to anger and would react in extreme manners, throwing things, breaking things in the school, you know, and just getting himself in trouble all the time at school. When he was just eight years old, he was arrested for breaking and entering into somebody's home.
0: Eight.
1: Eight. Like, that's so young. Bloody hell. And this led to him being held in an institution for young offenders.
0: Wow. So from eight, he was already in the system. Yeah. I mean, how would you even think about, like breaking into someone's house at eight years old. I'd be terrified, you know? Like I know, and it's children's minds are like so naive and so young, like, you know, they don't
1: even really think about those things. He was in such a desperate situation. Of course,
0: it shows how he was from such a young age exposed to things that were so abnormal. Yeah. And so not the norm, that his brain was clearly not um, progressing or, you know. Well, he he was just doing what he had to do, I suppose, to to survive. survive. Oh, that's sad. I know. Don't feel sorry for him, though. Yeah, no.
1: I mean, for a minute, you can. You can feel sorry for the eight-year-old, I think. Yeah, yeah. This was, so this situation for him was to be a repetitive storyline throughout his life. So when he was around 10 years old, the family moved to another suburb of Perth. And it was in this town that Dave would meet, that this is where he met um, Catherine Mm -hmm. through mutual friends. And they both end up doing breaking engines together and they're constantly caught because they're just so young. Mm. And they're like getting off of these minor punishments at the time though. So David left the educational system at 15 years of age in order to train to become a jockey. He trained at Ascot Racecourse under Eric Parnham. And David was small and wiry, so probably really light. And this is probably due to the fact that he was neglected. Mm. Um, so good size for being a jockey. Yeah, they're... of
0: course, because like the smaller they are, the lighter they, they are, are for the horse, exactly. the more speed the horse can go. Absolutely, because we're such a
1: professional. I don't know if you all knew that. (laughs) Um, Here, David is known to have physically abused some of the horses under his care. So when he was charged with looking after and mucking out their stables, he was actually like hurting them. This really
0: fucking pisses me off. I
1: know he's 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 a bad guy. Yeah. So not long after David had started at this jockey apprenticeship, he snuck into the room of the landlady at the boarding house where he was staying. Now he was wearing nothing but a stocking over his head and he attacked her attempting to rape her. So she had a, a dog who, although very small, managed to actually scare David off. Oh, But um, this obviously, there's the end then of his jockey career. Right. Eric Yeah, was like, this is a bad guy and got rid of him.
0: Moral of the story, guys, get a dog.
1: Yeah, even if it's a teeny one. Yeah. So David was in and out of prison throughout his teenage years for stealing cars, shoplifting, breaking and entering. He was also diagnosed as being a nymphomaniac, a a paraphiliac, and addicted to porn. David married his first wife, Kerry, in 1972, when he was just 21 years old. They only knew each other a month before they got married, and they had one child together, a girl named Tanya. So David had a bad accident at work, and at the time, I think he was working as a laborer or a brickie, Mm -hmm. um, and a What they're calling a barge, but I'm guessing was like just a big heavy stone, was dropped on his head when it was being moved. He obviously was in the wrong place or they moved it in the wrong way or whatever. But anyway, it fell and hit him on the head. And his wife said that this was when things really started to change with David. His behavior began to change. He began to criticize everything that she did, started having affairs he was advertising in the Desperate and Dateless section of the newspapers looking for sex. Mm-hmm. He was asking for sex because, and this is in his, in his actual bio what he was putting in the newspapers, he was in a boring marriage. Oh, what a dick. What an awful thing to say and do, dick. Right? And for her
0: to actually be able to read that. I know, sure she, she, saw she did them. Yeah, yeah. that's so bad. So eventually
1: the straw that broke the camel's back with Kerry was... When David moved a 16-year-old girl whom he was labelling his girlfriend into their family home with Kerry and their younger daughter, (gasps) Tanya.
0: The absolute brazen cheek of this this guy. Just disgusting. What a joke. So David moves his
1: daughter, Tanya, into his marital bed with his wife, Kerry, and David and his girlfriend moved into Tanya's old bedroom. Like, it's beggar's belief.
0: Oh, my God. I'm surprised she was, I mean... Let him do that Did you not kick him I out I just
1: don't Well I think she did uh, Like this was kind of The, the straw, straw That broke the, birth brought the comes back, And yeah. she was You know It happened And she was probably In a bit of shock
0: Oh my god That's crazy And she
1: did get rid of him So Tanya the daughter Changed her name After the horrifying truth About her father And his crimes came to light she has never married or had children as she does not want to continue on the bloodline of her father.
0: Oh my gosh, wow. For
1: fear that any child with his DNA could turn out like him in the future.
0: <gasps> That's mad. That's
1: I, I find that so dreadfully sad. Yeah. It just really reveals how the families of these awful people are victims too. Of course, and, and, and they, the knock-on effect that it has yeah, in their lives. They have to live with yeah. the repercussions of their relatives' behavior, not their behavior.
0: And also the, the name the the Stigma that's attached to the name, yeah. like burnt David Burney. Mm. If someone in Australia you know, knows that she's a Burney and it's like, Oh, is she your dad you're not related to that David Burney? Are you you know, and it's spelled like, in a really weird way? Yeah, it's so like it's B I R, yeah, so but it's it is, yeah, it's quite an unusual so it's name. So, I mean, it must be hard to carry that sort of weight on your shoulders knowing Absolutely. your dad is such a bad person. And Tanya was actually only 10
1: years old when her father was arrested, wow. so she was just a, she was a really young child, very pivotal age. So in interviews, David's brother says that David's sex addiction meant... So this is interviews later on, mm-hmm. okay? Hannah, I know you're going to go back a bit in time again, mm-hmm. but I'm just I'm going to... A little bit of what he's like, and then we'll go back again. So in interviews, David's brother says that David's sex addiction meant that he wanted sex up to six times a day. He would go as far as... into has. This is so horrible, by the way, trigger warning. He would go as far as, as to inject himself with anesthetic into his penis... Oh in order to make himself last longer.
0: Oh my God.
1: What an odd thing to do.
0: That is so crazy and scary.
1: It's really creepy. Mm. This brother says that after separating from one of his girlfriends, he propositioned his own brother for sex. Mm. It was implied that this, in fact, that he did in fact rape this brother, but I
0: couldn't confirm that anyway. I saw on an interview with his brother that it did happen. Yeah. He I said saw an no. saw interview. And um, like... For three days, kept asking his brother, and his brother said kept saying no, no. And then, when he was asleep in his bed, David came into his room and sexually assaulted him.
1: Right. Okay. So I might have seen that same interview, but I he he didn't outright say it, so mm. I thought it was more implied. Mm-hmm. But i I'm I I kind of assumed like you that yeah. that did happen. So he also gifted the same brother, and I use this term "gifted" very sarcastically. Mm. So he also gifted the same brother. With se- so of sex with Catherine as a present for his 21st birthday. I mean, I just cannot cope no. with any of this. So this brother actually ended up in prison himself for nine years, later on for raping an 80-year-old woman.
0: Yeah. Which
1: awesome. is really sad. Yeah. So at the time of his arrest, David was working in a car record shop in Vil- Villagy, I think, or
0: Villagie. Villagy?
1: Willagy? Willoughby. In all of those places, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Close to his ha- his then home in the suburbs of Perth.
0: Good old Perth. Mm. So going back to this lovely young gal that David had met at a young age, Catherine Margaret Harrison was born on twenty fifth of May, nineteen fifty one, to parents Doreen and Harold. She was just two years old when her mother Doreen sadly died during a difficult childbirth whilst delivering Catherine's younger brother, who also died just two days later. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Harold really struggled trying to raise Catherine, and eventually he sent her away to live with her maternal grandparents. And it's when she was aged around 10 that he decided he'd now wanted to raise her. So this resulted in Harold and her grandparents becoming involved in a bitter legal battle, which oh, went no. on for, yeah, like back and forth for a really long time in order to gain custody over her. Um, Harold eventually won this custody dispute and he regained sole custody of his daughter but Catherine never really knew any kind of stability as a result of this from the day she was born according to those who knew her as a child. She mm. was shipped off from one place to another. Um, at one point, she was even moved to South Africa with her dad. It was I mean, it. that's a, like a totally different culture and everything. Completely like different. So
1: different from where she yeah, was and absolutely. where she started. And
0: also she hadn't grown up with him for quite a long time. So now he had suddenly wanted her, you know, and she was now used to the, gra- the maternal grandparents. So it's kind of like having to start afresh from a young age. it's Very a confusing. Yeah, exactly. So confusing for, for a young girl. Mm. Um, and it was said that her father sometimes wanted her uh, and then sometimes didn't want her. Um, was
1: convenient. Yeah,
0: and then it was the same with her grandparents. So it's almost like he fought for her, but actually didn't seem to actually care about her or want her. So it's, it's a lot of like, like I said, like un- instability and a lot of toing and froing. Very difficult foundations to bring up mm-hmm. a young child. There didn't seem to be any solid type of home foundation at all where she could actually settle and she never actually felt comfortable for very long before she was moved back and forth again. So she was actually, as a result, a very disrupted and unsettled young girl. Her her, existence so far had been just up and down, up and down, Mm. all over the place. So as a result, Catherine didn't really fit in anywhere. She like because we're kind of picked on by the other kids kind of like what we talked about with david as well they didn't want to play with her and they didn't include her in any games or any parties they didn't want anything to do with her because of the bad reputation that her family had and sort of dysfunctional background she came from so she was now as a young girl um attending school in perth and perth is the capital and largest city of western australia It's the fourth most populated city in Australia, with a population of 2.2 million within Greater Perth. And Perth was named after the city of Perth in Scotland. Fun fact. Very fun fact. There you go. Thought I'd throw that in there. And you are, in fact, half Scottish. I actually am, guys. I was about to throw that in there as well. (laughs) I wasn't really. (laughs) But she threw it in there for me. Um, And it has actually been ranked as one of the world's most livable cities. Oh, let's go. Yeah, I know, shall we? I'm pretty sure that London must be one of the nerds
1: most unlivable. Well, unaffordable, anyway. I
0: love Australia. (laughs) It's so nice. So, it was during this lonely time when Catherine was at school in Perth and she was age 12, and she meets this boy who would later be forever intertwined in her life and not in a good way. Who would have thought at the time this young boy would become the other half to Australia's most evil couple, David Burney? The two young outcasts formed a solid and instantaneous bond likely made stronger due to the dysfunctional households they both lived in. Catherine's dad actually really didn't like her hanging out with David or fraternizing with this young whippersnapper in whippersnapper. his eyes. Yeah, thought I'd throw that in there as well. And it actually led to her getting into a lot of trouble with police and it led her down a bad path. But of course, she didn't want to listen to her dad. Um, I mean, who would at that age anyway? She's around 12 at this time. But around 12 or 14 is when the pair were really getting into all sorts of trouble, both at school and with the law. They also um, engaged in sex together for the first time at 14. So they it were kind so of young. at a young age, like doing a lot of things that, that you know, um, normal sort of teenagers or whatever they shouldn't really be doing. So together they committed burglaries, house break-ins, car thefts. And from word go, it just seems the two of them were never going to be on the right side of the law. And as a couple, they clearly straight away were a really bad influence on each other. And that is a bloody understatement, as we will see later down the line. (laughs) But despite this, it seems they really related to one another. And these two formerly kind of lost young individuals found solace and and a bond in each other that they hadn't experienced ever in their lives before. And although it may sound kind of romantic, don't be fooled. Because once this pair joined together, it would form a lethal and deadly combination. At first, due to their young age, they got off lightly in court for what were considered to be petty crimes like the burglaries and the car thefts. But consequently, after constant reoffending offending and showing no signs of going on the straight and narrow, young Catherine ended up being sent to a youth prison when she was still an adolescent. She was still a teen at this point. So clearly our dad had been right when he'd instantly sensed trouble coming, you know, when these two had actually met. Yeah, that Um, together they were not a good Together it was just a toxic mix. And I mean, clearly they didn't bring the best out in each other uh, like relationships, you know, should. So Catherine spent six months in prison and this time she was away from David, which allowed her to break the dependency (coughs) that she had formed on their relationship. Her incarceration was to be the only thing that finally had separated the troubled pair. Once Catherine was released on parole, she was encouraged by her parole officer to, consenting to, to basically start work as a housekeeper. She took this advice and began working for a family called the McLaughlins. This is where she met her soon-to-be husband, the son of her employer, Donald McLaughlin. Now, there was an instant. I bet they were delighted. I bet they were absolutely overjoyed with this, like, like, oh, so where have you been for the last, you know, six months? Um, you know, but they absolutely loved her. Well, apparently he must have liked her quite a bit because there was an instant attraction. And she actually married Donald on her 21st birthday. And they were said to seem really happy together. So it was almost like she'd finally started a brand new life and she was on the right trajectory, you know. Things were looking up for Catherine. So together, they went on to have six children, um, sadly, their first child died when he was tragically struck by a car and died in front of Catherine when he was just an infant. Awful, so sad. So it is actually speculated that this tragedy was to have likely contributed to her shocking behaviour that would occur down the line. I mean, obviously, there's probably a you know a multitude of different things mm-hmm. and mitigating factors. Yeah, but I mean. Something like watching one of your, you know, firstborn children die in front of you must be very, very hard. Still, though, absolutely no excuse for what Catherine does. So it was in 1985 that Catherine reconnected with her first. I like the way love. you had to get that just had to make sure I was like we're not feeling sorry for her too much though. But that is very sad. So it was in 1985 that she reconnected with David, her first love after years apart. Now, after deciding to be together for good once more. Catherine told her husband she was popping out for a walk, and she never oh, came stop back. stop it! She did. She just popped out for a little, oh my little god, stroll.
1: It's, it's like the version of like a text message breakup oh now, my god, isn't, it? isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. Oh my god, totally. Went out to get the milk. Yep. So this that one is stop. Didn't need This her husband. Six children. Father. Six of her children. She said she's going out for a walk, and she never bloody bothered coming back. Yeah. See ya. Charming. So she'd obviously had enough, decided David was who she wanted to be with and left her husband, left her children and just wanted to be with David once again, even though he was also married to, um, you know, his first wife, Carrie, was it? Yeah. Yeah. So Catherine, you know, I'm not being rude, but I will because she's evil is already at this age a kind of like scrawny looking already look quite haggard at quite a young age. Like she, well I mean she had six children. She did have six children, but she, she looked she had quite she's quite a harsh faced kind of woman. I can imagine you know what I mean? with
1: her type of upbringing, like being in prison, that kind of stuff. I can totally, yeah. I can totally see what yeah. you're saying. But that you men- get that. Oh, just yeah. hit myself with the microphone. <laughs> Jesus. That you'd get that kind of hard look, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, of
0: course. And she was, she's very hard-faced. Like, she looks quite fr- like, scary, to be honest. But the men seemed to really like her. And David was obviously besotted with her. So now, the two damaged lovers were reunited once again. And things were sadly going to take a horrifying turn leaving four young women dead and one running for her life. So Catherine did change her name, surname to Bernie. And she, and David, moved into a house together. So apparently their living conditions were pretty <laughs> rank. They didn't ever clean or tidy up after themselves, apparently. Apparently there, there were crummies everywhere. You know, crummies, crumbs. Crummies,
1: <laughs> crummies, <laughs> crummies like, everywhere. There I hate crumbs. Oh, I
0: hate crumbs as well. That's why I call them crummies. It's oh. like my worst. You no. know when
1: like creeps me. I, out I very rarely would like eat in the bed, but sometimes sometimes might watch a movie in oh, bed or something. But, like, bring a tray. And uh, well, I actually don't. Oh, I do have a tray. Yeah, take um, a tray. Hundred percent. Like, sometimes you know, in the biscuits, and I'm like, don't get the crumbs in the bed. That's why you bring don't a tray. Get the crumbs in the what's bed? wrong
0: with you? Uh, there was old food lying around. There was like you know, un- uncleaned dishes. There was. It was just a very kind of squalid, you know, unkempt kind of place that they lived in. They didn't have much sort of what's it self respect when it came to where they were living. Well, what's that word? No pride uh, yeah, in their I was home. Just gonna say, Home pride, pride of house. No, they went house proud. House pride. Of yeah. Jesus. So David. yes get there in the end. Exactly. <laughs> Finally. I told you we're rusty today, guys. <laughs> Dusting off those cobwebs. Mm. So David takes on a job at a car wrecker's yard, which I think is where they kind of, you know, can either fix cars and they basically come to like take car parts Yeah, there apart. might be parts, yeah, that yeah, kind of stuff. that kind of thing. And it wasn't far from the home they were living. So it was around this time that they really started to talk about and explore they, their sadomasochistic tendencies or S&M, which is when people get pleasure from, um, they get sexual pleasure from mm. seeing others' pain. Or pain themselves sometimes too. Or pain themselves, but we spoke about that a lot with
1: uh, Dennehy, Joanna Dennehy. Yeah, and
0: also the Toolbox Killers as well. Mm. They were also very sadistic killers. So David had a voracious and insatiable sexual appetite as you touched on earlier. I mean he was without doubt a sex addict um and like I said Kerry had even caught him advertising in the Sunday Times all those kind of things you know he sexually assaulted his own brother. this guy was constantly constantly obsessed mm. and besotted and completely preoccupied with sex and when he was going to get it next basically so they're really exploring their twisted fantasies and they discovered a book which they read together and they both really enjoyed. This book was called The Perfect Murder Um, and it would actually be used as a sort of blueprint to what they wanted to do to young women. So if you're wondering what this book is about, um, the title is pretty self-explanatory, mm-hmm. Perfect Murder, um, that kind of thing. But they really, really got into it. And this kind of made it rung a bell with me. Do you remember like Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, who were a killer couple? Oh my gosh, and there was like a read... book that oh, he made books. her read. Was it like Mein Kampf or something like that? There, there was, was another few, one. There was a few different yeah. ones. They
1: used to read a lot of like Hitler's kind of stuff and, yeah. and, and Nietzsche and stuff like that and as well. And they'd
0: read them like, you know, like in on the moors and start talking about fantasies. And this book kind of inspired them. And This reminded me of them. I actually didn't pick up on that. You're right. Mm. So this book definitely tipped these two like ticking time bombs over the edge. And they were getting ready to take their sick ideas to the next level. Ready to act out their depraved acts, not only on each other. That wasn't enough anymore. Now they decided they wanted to add other women into the equation. But not with consent, but by force. They wanted to kidnap, rape, and torture women to fulfill their own sick and perverted fantasies. And now they decided they were ready to hunt for their first innocent victim. They meticulously planned out their M.O., (laughs) modus operandi, which would be stalking around the Perth suburbs together with Catherine in the car to falsely reassure potential victims. Again, like Myra and Ian, isn't it? Very Very similar. similar. Yeah. Yeah. And um... Fred and Rose West and oh, Ken and Barbie killers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul, I don't think of their names. Paul, Paul Bernardo, and... Carla, Carla yeah. So the plan was for Catherine to keep an eye out for any girl that she liked the look of and then lure her into their car. And if she wanted to go ahead with the, the kidnap and the torture and rape of the girl, then she would say a code to David. And their code was, I've got the munchies. If David also liked the look of said victim, he would seal the girl's fate by saying, I've got the munchies too. So their sadistic crimes would eventually become known as the Morehouse murders due to the now infamous address where the killings would take place. And this was inside their filthy house on 3 Morehouse Street in Willardgy. I'm just gonna say Willardgy, which is a suburb of Perth, as you said. I I don't have a clue how to pronounce it. So any Australian listeners, please tell us. Here, they would go on to murder four young women in 10 days. I mean, these guys were about to embark on a real murder spree. Yeah. And once they started, they just did not stop. and They very quickly got a taste for it. So Mary Nielsen
1: was 22 years of age at the time of her death. She was working part time at a delicatessen where she and while she was also studying psychology at the University of Western Australia. Mary had brought her car into the record shop where David worked at the time. And David told her that her tires all needed to be replaced.
0: Now, that old chestnut, eh?
1: Yeah, I know. So obviously being a student and working part-time, this would have been a big expense for her. But David had a solution. He told her that he happened to have the tires that she needed at home. And that he would sell them to her for a much cheaper price. David took her number and once he arrived home, Catherine rang Mary and organized for her to come and get the tires from their home, number three, Morehouse Street, um, on the 6th of October, Oh no, poor girl. Just trying
0: to literally get her car fixed and get her tires fixed. It's mm. so awful.
1: It's really awful. So little did Mary know that she had just been led into a horrific trap. From the moment Mary arrived at that front door, she was in danger. When she's at the front door, David and Catherine immediately attack Mary. They tie her and chain her to the bed and David sexually assaults her while Catherine watches on, encouraging him. So Catherine and David have researched the best place to hide a missing car and came up with the idea that hiding the car kind of in plain sight was the best route to go. Now this is unbelievable, but the decision was to hide the car in a police station parking lot and that this was the best way. It's so brazen. It's so brazen. So Catherine stays at home and guards over Mary while David takes Mary's car and parks it at the police station. He then goes back to the home where he sexually assaults Mary again and again with Catherine's encouragement. Then they drive Mary out into the Glen Eagle National Park in Bedforddale. So this is in per- in... Perth. Perth, yeah. Um, here Catherine and David dig a shallow pit, place Mary into the pit where she's once again brutally raped by David. Then using a nylon cord, he strangles her and together David and Catherine bury Mary and is what to be her shallow grave. Oh God. So the pair have been planning these murders for months and as Hannah said, they'd read that book, The Perfect Murder, before they started their crimes and were using this as their guide on how they would commit these murders. David actually stabbed Mary multiple times after her death because he had read that this would speed up the decomposition process.
0: Oh,
1: wow. Awful. Mary was initially thought by police to have been a missing person, but they quickly decide that she was an endangered person. So this, couple, this killer couple were using that ruse that we've heard before with killer couples that victims are more likely to feel safe if there is a man and a woman together. So if they offer the young woman a lift, but the offer came from Catherine, these young women would feel safer and more get, likely to jump yeah, in the car. Yeah, like a
0: false sense of security. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, well, he's not going to do anything. There's a, he's got a lovely wife or whatever, you know. Yes. You wouldn't think anything untoward was going to happen. And then they're kind of just grateful for this lift of wherever they were headed.
1: Yeah. You know, So, chillingly, it was Catherine who decided who would be their next victim most of the time. Mm. That, as you said, she would use that code word that they had in order to communicate with each other. And once they had somebody in the car, they'd use that Munchies code word. Mm. Once it was used, they both knew that this was their next victim. So, just 10 days after the murder of Mary, on the 16th of October, 1986, another young girl goes missing. This time, it is a high school student from Netherlands called Susanna Candy. Susanna was hitchhiking on the Stirling Highway in Claremont on her way home from work when she's picked up by David and Catherine. The code word munchies is said and Catherine immediately jumps at the girl, like just jumps her with a knife, oh taking her completely by surprise and then ties her up and holds her at knife point all the way back to the house. So Susanna is also brought back to the house on Moore Street, or Moore House Street, where they force her to write letters to her family saying that she was safe. They also force her to call her parents and say that she's staying with friends. Mm. So at the house, Susanna is sexually assaulted by David while Catherine watches on. She's also chained to the bed and just left to be... Terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. After he has finished raping her, Catherine jumps into the bed beside the two as David attempts to strangle Susanna with a nylon cord. But she puts up such a huge fight that he actually just can't manage it. Wow. So instead, they come up with a different plan and they force feed her sleeping tablets. Once she falls asleep, David tells Catherine to kill her in order to prove to him her undying love for him. So again... David puts the nylon cord around Susanna's neck and watches on as Catherine uses it to strangle her. Susanna was just 15 years old when she was murdered. They drive her body out to the same spot in Glen Eagle and bury her in a shallow, shallow grave next to Mary Nielsen. They send one of the letters they had forced her to write the next day and wait around two weeks before sending the next one. Yeah. So the letters are sent to confuse the family and to of course, confuse police. to act
0: like she was um, a runaway. Well, we heard from her a lot two weeks ago, and then we just heard it from her again today. So it's kind of giving the illusion that she is still somewhere and able to write letters. So premeditated. So premeditated. And, and so and cunning. And the police were able to kind of say
1: because of these letters, oh, she's just run away.
0: Yeah, of course. And also, like, you know, we know police love to say and that. And they love to run away. Yeah. it's such an easier option, isn't it, than to think of the alternative. So, no, Patterson was walking,
1: sorry, she was actually driving home from work on the 1st of November, 1986. And this is the kind of storyline that really gets me. So, she ran out of fuel.
0: Oh, no. I hate these victims of kind of circumstance stories it's because just it's just so chilling. just like a, like, yeah. I mean, like, what are the odds that she ran out of, like, petrol at that point when they were driving nearby? It's so it's all tragic just so
1: yeah it just drives me crazy so like you know you're already so vulnerable probably upset and nervous that you've run out of fuel oh. and suddenly you're just at the mercy of strangers to help you or not as yeah, the case may be exactly so Nolan was driving home from her job managing the bar at a golf club called nedlands golf club she was stranded on the canning highway where she was picked up by david and Catherine. Just like their other victims, she was brought back to their home on Morehouse Street, where she was gagged, chained to the bed, and then raped multiple times by David as Catherine watched on. However, this time there was something different. Instead of raping and murdering her within kind of hours, David had developed an emotional attachment to Nolene. Now, Nolene was beautiful, like really stunning. Mm-hmm. She was like elegant, and he liked that, mm-hmm. and he liked her. So he kept Nolene prisoner for three days in the house. And I actually read somewhere I haven't written this down, but I believe that he had actually painted a room in her house a couple of weeks previously. So he knew her. So he kind of knew her. Oh yeah. Gosh. Nolene was smart. And she started flirting with David and trying to develop a kind of bond of yeah. trust between the two Clever. of them. Which is because she kind of knew him from mm. before. Mm-hmm. So... And she probably can tell that he kind of fancied her. She probably knew. So she actually convinces them to let her call a friend and tell them where her car is. She also tells the friend that she is safe and staying with friends. And I wonder if she's trying to give the friend some kind of distress call like an SOS. Mm. But the friend didn't pick up on it if she did. And it's not mentioned anywhere if that was the case but I just thought it's weird that she was the one to kind of say yeah. oh let me ring this friend
0: yeah she, she probably thought that like that whatever manner she spoken Maybe would be a kind of clue or whatever or hoped you know but I mean what's, it's, it's so, so hard because how is anyone going to think something like that it's, yeah and
1: it's the last it's, thing people would want of course to
0: it's like beyond your worst nightmares did we have a
1: conversation in our last episode about having, having like special words with friends yeah. code words we
0: need to come up with one Not, yeah. nothing to do with munchies though no <laughs> we'll think of another one it'll so probably revolver ha- Harry yeah yeah um, <laughs> Yeah.
1: So Catherine could see that David liked, Catherine herself could see, right, that David liked Nolene. And this enraged her. So the pair had a huge argument. And finally, she gave David an ultimatum either he killed Nolene or she would kill herself. So she was talking about committing suicide if yeah. he did not kill Nolene. So David was not willing to lose Catherine. So he forced Nolene to take sleeping tablets. And once she fell asleep, they strangled her. Together, they drove Nolene out to the Glen Eagle um, National Park, mm. but buried her slightly away from the others because David said she was special. They also bury her and the only victim that they buried with her underwear on. Oh, really? Yeah. So it would seem that Catherine wasn't happy with any of this either because she reportedly took great pleasure in throwing dirt in Nolene's face and spitting on her grave.
0: Ugh. Catherine was a nasty piece of work, and actually said to, to be a real work. driving force in these mm. in these crimes, and really encouraged him. Really, egged him. Filmed him, took photos, all of it. So it doesn't end there, though, because they are going to claim yet another victim. 21-year-old Denise Brown was a part-time computer operator who lived with her boyfriend. So she was just a normal, happy-go-lucky girl, and she was really enjoying life. You know, she's only 21, so she's at like, such, you a, know, baby. such an, a, a like great age. I mean, mm. I've been 21 about 17 times, so I could definitely <laughs> tell you how tell great she is. a lot about being 21. Exactly. So on November 5th, <laughs> 1986, she had spent the day with one of her girlfriends in Coolbellup, and then after, she went to catch a bus home. Now, a witness later confirmed seeing her waiting by this like port at Fremantle, waiting for this bus. It was a very busy area of Perth, and someone, a woman later recalled spotting her at this point. But as it got darker, Denise had been waiting at the bus stop on the Stirling Highway when she decides to try and hitch a ride. So faithfully, as we now know, this seemingly innocent mode of transport, hitchhiking, we've talked about this before, I'm sure we'll talk about it again, it can sometimes end in tragedy. And for Denise, um, unfortunately she had no idea at the time, but this would end in tragedy for her also. She's about to be picked up by the couple from your worst nightmare, the Bernies. After they pulled over, she gladly gets into their car, and they use their usual MO, you know, pulling out a knife on her before driving her back to their home on Morehouse Street, where the sick couple force poor Denise to strip off all of her clothes and her jewelry. I mean, it's the ultimate humiliation, isn't it? It's a way to, to, to instantly degrade and make your victim feel vulnerable by completely taking everything off yep. and leaving them so exposed. And um, it's such a vulnerable position to put someone in. So Catherine watched as David proceeds to viciously sexually assault Denise. And she sits there making a list of Denise's belongings, like like logging them all as Denise is being raped. So writing down, you know, like she's wearing this, the jewellery is like this. Um, and this is to basically document everything that this victim came into the house with. So nothing would be left behind. She was then drugged and chained to the bed overnight. And the next morning, the Bernies forced her... Do you to not... Call- Sorry, I'm
1: just going to stop you there for a you not think that was also a bit of a power play oh,
0: of course like now your stuff is mine yeah I'm in control all mm. of it there's there's so many I think awful you know sort of like things to it yeah. um you know it's about power it's control I you belong to us now your things belong to us now you know I'm gonna log them all it's it's like there's so many awful sadistic parts yeah. to it that Sadistic is the right word. yeah it's just mind-blowing
1: Sorry, I, you me probably totally year. lost your not it?
0: I actually have not. Mm. So um, the next morning, the Bernies forced her again to call her friend and pretend that she's going away for a few days. And again, like I said, this shows how meticulous and premeditated their crimes were. They knew to cover their tracks by making sure someone that knew her or friends or family, you know, like, oh, she's gone away. She says that she's, you know gone out for the night or she's gone out for drinks to make sure it buys them time so nobody is looking for her. Um, and is, this is very reminiscent of Dean Corll, the candy man. Yeah. Who we covered in, I don't know, two, three, four, five, something like that.
1: I So five? I was getting a bit of a daze there because I was just thinking how, like it's quite risky to let people, like, let okay,
0: make them to write things but you yeah. can kind of control what they're writing. But, but on the phone. It's a bit risky. But if you think about it, at knife point, and, or, you know, sometimes at gunpoint, like Dean Corll had his yeah. victims, D- Dean Coral's the candy man. Um, and it's, it is risky because how do you know your victim's not going to blurt out, help me, I'm right. being kidnapped. Yeah. But at the same time, you're at their mercy because even if you do blot that out, you're in their you're house, dead, yeah, you're yeah, yeah. chained up, you know, the, the victims also probably have that hope that they might release me if I just do if what I they do tell me told. to, yeah, absolutely. you know, because at the end of the day, the, the whole point is, that, is try and stay alive as much as you can. Yeah. So despite this length that they went to cover their tracks, um, Denise's family and friends were not buying this phone call and neither were police. They knew that something was up and Denise was likely the victim of foul play. They mm. just didn't know what had happened to her yet. So once the Bernese had tired of their fourth victim, they drove her to a forest um, they call- called Wanneroo Pine Plantation. And as they wait for night to fall, David rapes Denise again in the car then under the cover of darkness he drags her to a secluded part of the forest where he rapes her once more and then he tragically slits her throat denise is still very still and she's bleeding profusely and so they begin to dig her grave and they drag her body into it jesus now this part really kills me denise suddenly springs up in the grave alive she's terrified and screaming and at this point, David runs to the boot of his car, he grabs an axe and he comes back for Denise. He hits her twice in the head with the back of the axe until she is dead. Oh, God. It literally, like, I really bothered me reading up on that bit. Yeah. Her murder is just <laughs> a few days after that last victim, literally less than a week. This is such spree killing. It's killings. about four days later. It's like the appetite for this sexual violence and, and the murder, the thirst that they've now got for it was getting more voracious every day. Mm. However, they were also getting more cocky and thus more sloppy as we're soon to find out so the disappearances of these four women had now started to concern the local police it had taken a while though as one of the first victims families had had to kick up a big fuss when police had put her down as you know miss um run away. They, yeah a runaway and they really kicked off about that because they knew that that wasn't her character But despite this, there was no media frenzy. They weren't looking for serial killers or anything like that yet. Nobody knew that two serial killers were at work. Now, it was on November 10th, 1986, so it's just five days after Wendy's murder, that the whole horrifying case was about to be blown wide open. On the 9th of November, a half-naked Bruce and hysterical young woman runs absolutely terrified into a supermarket. Well, it's more like a Hoover store, actually. It's not a super. It sells like electrical goods and Hoovers and stuff like that. So, sorry, i going to be specific a store. here. A Hoover Very store. Specific store. So she's shouting that she's been raped and that she needs help. So police are immediately called and they drive over to pick her up. Once back at the station, she starts revealing an absolutely insane story of the ordeal she had just escaped. Her name was Kate Mwa. She was a 17-year-old model and she'd been hitchhiking by a highway after attending a concert in downtown Perth with her friends. After the show she was picked up with her friends and they headed towards her parents' home on the other side of the city. But halfway through that journey, Kate decided it was too far for them to drive. So just, you know, drop me off and I'll walk the rest of the way home myself kind of thing. So it was whilst she was walking, I know. So she's obviously being nice to be like, you know what guys, like I can go from here. I'll take it from here. It's too far for you. But it was whilst she was walking on her own, that she was picked up by a friendly couple in a brand new car their at first friendly personas left her feeling safe and secure as she gets into their car and they drive her to her parents' home. So they actually pull up outside her home. What? Outside her parents' home, yeah. So she was actually about to get out of the car when she sees that there's no door handle. No, yep. no, 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 no. That is my worst. I'm not even going to say who also did that. Oh my God. <laughs> we all know. I'm not even
1: going to say. Oh it. my God. That is my worst nightmare. I know.
0: So they said to her... That and white vans. Oh, 100%. So they said to her, oh, use the the window handle. So she went to use that, but there was no window handle. So they told her to use the window? So they were like, she's like, oh, there's no handle. They're like, oh, just use that window handle. That didn't work either. And this is Are they playing with her? Yeah, they're toying with her. They're they're, they're building up. They're they're enjoying this, the fear that's building in her now. Because she starts to obviously realize something is wrong. This is when David grabs her head and slams it into the two front seats of the car. Catherine must have got such a shock. Completely must have been absolutely terrified. Catherine then pulls out a butcher's knife and holds it to her throat. And she is then driven at knife point towards their home on Morehouse Street. They stopped the car en route to tie her hands together and wrap her in a large like, blanket so no passing cars would see what was going on in the car or if she tried to sort of make a fuss at passing cars. So here... Is this in the daytime? This is at night time after oh, a concert. Okay. So here, when she's at home, like the other innocent victims before her, she is stripped and sexually assaulted. Then she's also forced to call her mother and tell her that she'd had too much to drink and she was going to stay at a friend's house. No. Yeah she she actually said later that she i thought she was hoping her mum would realize that something was up and that this was just a ruse because kate was apparently not a drinker but clearly that didn't it didn't help either way um and then
1: also that almost kind of feeds into it because if you know your daughter's on a big drinker and she she says yeah i've actually drank too much i want to stay with such and such you might be like exactly
0: so she thought her mum would call that friend's house that to check if she actually was staying at such and such's house but that obviously didn't oh, happen sugar. yeah okay. so she was hoping that would happen so anyway David had gathered and bagged all of her clothes as well he was labeling them all her belongings and things and Kate from this knew that they had obviously done this before and they were kind of professionals at it they seemed very comfortable with what they were doing they it's almost like you know automatically knew what to pick up what to cover up and it really really scared her because she was like hmm this ain't their first rodeo, you know, Jesus. Yeah. I'm not their first victim. So apparently the purpose of the Burnies, like I said, documenting their victims things was to ensure that no evidence was left at their house whatsoever. They knew exactly what had come into their house with the victim and exactly what to dispose of. So police would never find any trace of them or their belongings down the line. Mm. So it goes to show how much thought that they'd put into this is insane. Um, Now, Kate, though, was a very intelligent and quick-thinking young woman. She instantly just knew that she was going to be murdered and that they had no intention of letting her go. She asked the Bernies from the beginning if they intended to kill or rape her, and she was informed, quote, We'll only rape you if you're good. What? That's that's what the Bernies said to her. So she made sure to keep disgusting, disgusting, vile, she made sure, though, to keep leaving clues wherever she could around their house throughout her entire ordeal. This girl is
1: unreal. She's
0: amazing. She believed that these clues, once found, even once she was dead down the line, which she believed was going to happen, it would help... She's so brave. I know. But it helped incriminate, you know, her her killers and who she, you know, who she knew would ultimately become her killers, shall I say. So the couple, over the next 24 hours, repeatedly sexually assaults her, she was also forced to dance for the Bernies to a song by the Dire Straits. And this is actually one of my favorite songs. So it's very upsetting. So she was forced to dance to Romeo mm, and Juliet yes. by That's the Dire Straits. Yeah, and over and over. And I mean, it's an absolute banger, that song. That is so weird. It's bizarre. But it was like entertainment, a form of entertainment, dance brass. It's a total power, stand there, yeah, Dance brass naked. And she said that she cried the entire time throughout this, bless her awful
1: oh no that's horrendous
0: yep. and like that, that must be like, that song for her now is so triggering oh my god 100 percent. even I like, even now i'm gonna just think of that like i'm gonna think i'm gonna always remember that now i listen to this song that it was used for such an awful awful yeah. thing you know but don't worry guys because this part does have a kind of happy ending um I mean, after this, she was sexually assaulted again um, and her legs were chained to the four corners of the Bernie's bed. And she was then forced to sleep handcuffed next to David in bed. And he actually then gives her sleeping tablets, which he thinks that she swallows, but she actually hides them under her tongue and then slips them under the mattress. Very oh clever, gosh. which means obviously then she's not going to be incapacitated. She's not going to be, you know, like not be able to move or anything like that. Even though they think that she has taken these sleeping pills, she's not, and she's completely coherent. Also, it means that there will be evidence down the line if police are looking for her, I guess. So during her time in captivity, she manages to actually befriend Catherine she's eventually that's so smart so smart she is super clever she eventually asks Catherine to untie her hands and legs so she can be a little bit more comfortable now Catherine had actually got into a false sense of security after getting away with so many murders recently and so she thought she was still fully in control of her you know terrified victim so she actually agrees to this now every time Catherine's back is turned or she's left alone with Kate and this is while David's gone back to work the next day Every time Catherine's back is turned, Kate continues to plant little notes around the house, she, um, anything to show that she'd been there. She actually later recalls how at one point Catherine pointed out a picture in the newspaper of a missing girl, Denise Brown, mm. the last victim, and she started laughing. And when Kate asked Catherine, why are you laughing? Catherine said, well, you'd think a big girl like her could look after herself. So apparently this was oh, just God. a headshot. That's so exactly. And this was just a picture of Denise. So you couldn't tell if she was a big girl, a small girl, medium, nothing. So Kate knew from that exchange that Denise was obviously one of their victims. The next morning, obviously David's going to work and leaves Catherine in charge of Kate completely. Um any chance Kate got at this point, she was hiding everything. She was constantly thinking, what do I do next? Um, what, what moment can I take to to secrete anything? She hides a packet of cigarettes um, in part, a part of the roof by standing on a couch when Catherine had turned her back. So literally just oh slipped God. it into a little nook in the roof. She's clearly much smarter than both the birdies combined. Um, and unlike the earlier victim, Nolene, who Catherine had despised... You know, Catherine seemed to actually quite like Kate. And it was thanks to this that Kate had the opportunity she to She played up to
1: her rather than paying she did. up she, to him. exactly.
0: And she played up to the the, the one who was kind of the, the controlling one behind it. The, like, yeah, she probably had all the power of to call the shots yeah. here. You know, I pick this girl. I've got the munchies. Then David either, you know, has Agreed to go along didn't. with that. Yeah. So it seemed like Catherine was calling the shots. And police later do say down the line, she was the one who was completely in charge of this and, and was the driving force. Now, whilst Ava's at work, there's a knock on the door and it's Catherine's drug dealer. So as she goes to sort out this drug deal, Kate is left alone momentarily. She sees her opportunity. She manages to find a window. She breaks the lock and she jumps out. Oh my God. Superhero. So on the way down, she hits her head on the concrete. Oh no. Oh no. As she was so hastily trying to escape. So she's very dazed and she's concussed and kind of like, you know, in pain she has a kind of hard time finding her footing, but this brave girl somehow manages to gather herself and she gets up and she just runs for her life. She's half naked, but thankfully still alive and runs to the house next door. She's frantically banging on the door. Um, And she said she, she was almost half laughing and half crying because she was so hysterical. Yeah, absolutely. But nobody answers. So she tries the next house and she's banging on the door, but nobody is there either. So she then jumps over the back gate, desperate to hide in case anyone's following her. And then she's attacked by a black dog. So she's... I know, I know. I don't know. What? I mean, literally everything. She's escaped these killers. She's she's concussed herself. And now she's literally been attacked by I a mean, dog. You, you she's couldn't been make it through. up. She like. literally couldn't make up. She has been through the bloody wars, this girl.
1: Like if that was a storyline in a movie, I'd be like, ah, oh, come on. Yeah.
0: Oh, 100%. So then she runs from there and she spots a man smoking a cigarette out of the back of a nearby Hoover shop, as I spoke of earlier. So she runs towards him and she says, quote, I've been raped. Please take me inside and call the police. End quote. She also says, if a woman turns up saying I've had a fight with her or that I'm her daughter, don't believe her because she's really worried that Catherine is right behind her. Oh my God. And the fact she had the foresight to say that. In case, because she knew how manipulative and how normal and nice that the Bernie seemed. So they'd come up with any kind of excuse. Yeah. So she's very clever. So the police are called and on hearing this unbelievable story, they are at first very skeptical of what they're hearing. To them, it sounded too far-fetched. Mm. however a young constable called laura hancock who was super new to the force was told to take kate's statement and it was actually the first statement that she'd ever taken as a as a constable honestly could not make this you literally could not like you couldn't write it you couldn't so hancock actually says that she believed kate straight away due to the amount of detail and also just the terror in her eyes yeah well
1: like just how she was probably reacting yeah
0: So Kate, during this statement, also told Hancock that she believed that there's been others before her and that they had died and that she was going to die too if she hadn't escaped. So Kate was really consistent with her story and she kept telling police, like, you know, I've been kidnapped by serial killers and you should be looking for them instead of questioning me the whole time. And she's, you know, quite right. And (laughs) Hancock later realized that she as the rookie new young sort of cop, had been asked to interview Kate and take the statement because the other more experienced officers didn't believe Kate. They thought she was a time waster. That is awful. Yeah. So when Hancock went and to I'm another- And I'm sure there are people who go and do stupid I'm things sure like that, but it's just so awful the time. that that happened but to But I feel like you need to take each sort of, you know, obviously we're not police officers. I know they do such hard, hard work, but it's almost like, you know, it doesn't matter whether you believe them or not, you have to listen to this, you need to listen to what they're saying. It's
1: kind of part and parcel of the job, unfortunately. Like you just have to put up with that rubbish. Of course, exactly. it's, you know, if people are lying and doing mad stories, happen. you're just gonna have it's gonna to happen, listen. but
0: some will be telling the truth.
1: I suppose they did listen, even though like, they well, sent the Well, no, they bookie. got the new, they're like, you yeah. know what,
0: you just take it from here. And actually it gets worse when it comes to the police. Oh, so no. when Hancock went to another officer with Kate's statement, she was told by this officer, it's a bizarre story and to stitch her up for a false report. And she was then told to charge Kate, but her gut instinct told her not to. Oh so my god, she and was, she was in, a rookie she, cop. She was what a rookie. Young young cop and she was she was told go and charge her cuz she's making stuff up. That
1: would be a really hard call I mean, not r- to follow that it's order. It's insane.
0: But she also said that Kate was so empathetic and and like insistent that, you know, they're serial killers. Other girls can get hurt. Like you need to get them now. So she wasn't even really thinking about herself. She was thinking about the potential other girls that were going to become victims of them. So Kate, being the sharp, clever girl that she was, also memorized the Bernie's address and the telephone number when she seen them printed on letters around the house. Jesus. Yep. This so girl is incredible. This girl came with receipts, okay? She was <laughs> like, I got this, I got this, exhibit a you know. So <laughs> She's like her she own bloody She really is, honestly. Her so own investigator. The Bernies had actually given fake names for themselves to Kate, but she had actually clocked David's um, real name on a medicine bottle in the kitchen. So she knew This pair what his are name just was. idiots. And Kate is just idiots.
1: really smart.
0: Exactly. So she told police how she also... As all kids are, by the yeah. way. <laughs> Don't know about that. <laughs> so she'd been made to watch the film Rambo on a video with a couple the night before. So go to the house and look Rambo. for that Is video that... in the VCR. It's Sylvester, Sylvester Stallone.
1: Stallone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: She also described a drawing that she'd quickly scribbled and hidden in a drawer at the house. So for police to go and look for that. Um, So finally, police sort of put her in the back of a car and they try and drive her around to see if she can identify their home. So as they turn into Morehouse Street, Kate becomes so upset and so distraught when they pass the Bernie's house that she starts hiding and crouching in the back of the car. So this is when the other cops start to think maybe there is something to her story. So they go and knock on the door of three Morehouse Street and there's no answer. So They speak to a next door neighbor and the woman recalls seeing a girl jump out of the Bernie's window, completely well, half naked and run down the street. Did so, she call the police? Well, clearly yeah. not. So now this is evidence that corroborates Kate's story and to corroborates that she's telling the truth. So three police officers force their way into the house and inside the bedroom, they find chains wrapped around the bed, just as Kate had oh, described. No. They find sleeping tablets hidden under the mattress that Kate had spat out and hidden Unbeknownst to the Bernies, and she told police that they would be there. So this further corroborates her whole story, and along with other evidence that she'd left around the house, including you know the the drawing in um, the cigarette the cigarettes. hidden in the ceiling. Yep, and then there was Rambo and Rocky. They'd made her watch two. Sylvester Sloan films. Um, she'd also put her I lipstick- mean, is that not torture enough? I know, right? <laughs> no, Seriously, guys, you're going too far now. <laughs> she also put her lipstick under a bean bag, which was hidden away, and they found that too. So they know she's telling the truth and they have to find her dangerous abductors. Police decide the best thing to do is just stake out the house and wait to see if one of them would return. Which eventually, being the stupid people that they are, they do. Catherine approaches her house, laden down with cleaning supplies, no less. Oh my god, yes, no. You couldn't so she's be, rocking up with course.
1: literally all the evidence of to actually course. get rid of evidence.
0: Exactly. You couldn't Hilarious. make it up, honestly. So when she sees the officers, she starts to run, but they catch her. And of course, being Catherine, she's very aggressive and, and you know, she's very like, you know, standoffish with them. They tell her they're making inquiries about a kidnap. She denies any knowledge of it, and she tells them that she lives at the house with a man called David, and then she's arrested. So David's arrested shortly thereafter. So neighbors were so shocked about hearing what had actually taken place on their quiet street. Because seeing all this happen, you know, a half-naked girl running, Bernie's arrested, police everywhere. It's just becoming more and more You're one rocking
1: up with the bag full of uh, cleaning cleaning products. Cleaning products, honestly.
0: So back at the station, they're separately questioning the Bernies. And Catherine denies ever meeting Kate. David said she came to their house willingly for consensual sex. Of course they do. Yeah. So the police aren't making any progress for a while until Detective Sergeant Vince Katish is not, is basically, he's kind of had enough and he's questioning David. And he suddenly just, David just gets tired of being questioned and he turns to the investigators and says, quote, it's getting dark, let's grab a shovel and go dig them up, end quote. So when officers ask him, how many are there, David? He says, okay, there's four of them. So clearly, David knew the jig was up and he was ready to reveal the truth. He goes on to confess they had murdered four girls and he's willing to take officers and show them where the victims were buried. Meanwhile, Catherine was told David had made a confession and was willing to take the officers to the grave sites. So Catherine, clearly wanting to regain control of the situation mm. and of the narrative, kept asking police, like, please, can I talk to David? Which they wouldn't let Obviously, her. no. Exactly. So then finally, she relents, realizing she's been caught. And she agrees to accompany the police and David to the burial ground for their victims. Kathy was put in the back seat of a police vehicle with an officer, and it was her who directed police to the first victim's grave. It was the burial site of their most recent victim, Denise Brown. Then they were directed to the next one at the Glen Eagles National Park, which is on the other side of Perth. So they'd actually gone to two separate sites. sites, The Glen Eagles Park was spread over a huge area. So it's actually a miracle the Burnies could locate the grave sites in such a huge piece of land. But they'd buried them quite close together. like They knew the area. Yeah, they did. And it was between like a truck stop and, and a picnic stop. So that's where the police were led to, to find the graves of the three remaining victims. So David pointed out another burial site. Under a mound of dirt behind a log, and said just matter-of-factly, "Behind that log is a body of Sue Candy." He then points them towards two more: the graves of Mary Nelson and uh, Denise Brown. When asked no, that about, would be the other oh one. wait, no, wait, sorry, was it Wendy?
1: No, it was
0: who have you said so far? Mary Nelson, so Nolene Patterson, Nolene Patterson. So, when asked about the whereabouts of Nolene Patterson's body, Catherine is when she intervenes. She went along pointing out at the final grave this is the one she hated exactly and when approaching it she then proudly talks about how she killed this one and she starts swearing and then she spits on the grave in front of the officers this is on camera this is all filmed as well so it's absolute utter disrespect or- even after death even after you've you know tortured and killed her and you still it's just vile
1: it just goes to show how much she really hated oh letting, she was, like, so, she was jealous so jealous of her, of her yeah.
0: completely and this is when the police saw a really evil side of this little tiny woman yeah. they were like this this sort of demon sort of came out of her
1: yeah she she showed herself up there
0: yeah 100 percent. so um the fact that this killer couple were readily admitting to their crimes really helped the police immensely and they were quickly taken back to jail to finally be charged So on the 12th of
1: November, 1986, investigators charged both David and Catherine Burney of four counts of murder for the four murdered victims and two counts of rape and one count of kidnapping for Kate Moore. David pleads guilty to four counts of murder and one count each of abduction and rape for each of the four and obviously the abduction and rape also of Kate Mm. He was sentenced to four life term sentences for each of the murdered victims. The Judge Justice Alkin Wallace stamped his record with never to be released denying him eligibility for parole saying that the crimes were clearly premeditated relentless and cruel. Mm. Um, Catherine was declared fit for trial after queries over her sanity but she is also convicted of four counts of murder and sentenced to life, to four life sentences, but would be eligible for parole after 20 years. Mm. She apparently had to be dragged by court marshals, kicking and screaming to the van that would transport her. She's a piece of work, isn't she? She really is. So to the van that would transport her to her new residence at Bandy Up There's actually, there's
0: videos of this. I'm gonna put it on our Instagram.
1: Absolutely put it on Instagram. So David on the other hand was blowing kisses to an enraged public who were standing outside the court awaiting his sentencing. Wow! So she's kicking and screaming and he's, he's blowing he's kisses. He's enjoying it. Yeah. So he was held in Fremantle, Um, sorry, he was held in Fremantle prison, which is a maximum security prison in Western Australia. He was a violent prisoner and constantly getting into fights with other inmates Eventually, he had to be kept in solitary confinement in order to keep him safe from other inmates and also to keep them safe from him. Mm. They actually converted three of the death row cells in order to accommodate him, and he was a resident there until it closed down in 1991. His old cell is now a part of a tour of the old prison. <gasps> i I want to go. <laughs> well, Hannah, for Christmas, I booked you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no. But maybe if we go to Australia, we will go one day. Yes, exactly. So, the pair would communicate with each other via letters for years, writing over 2,600 letters to each other. Jesus. Which kind of makes me sick.
0: Yeah, 100%.
1: I struggle with the fact that they were actually allowed that kind of communication. I I feel like it seems wrong. It is
0: wrong. It's so wrong. It's not fair. Um, Initially,
1: Catherine was all set to officially marry David, but once she started campaigning for parole, she realized that continuing to entangle herself with David was not gonna help her case. This is when she stopped writing to David and cut all ties with him. She then used the old time classic excuse of it was all oh. for love. The things I did, I did them out of love yeah. for the man that I was infatuated by. I mean, I actually of
0: hate course. She, pulled, she tried pulling excuse. a Carla Hamolka, didn't she? And like it
1: may well be true but in no way excuses the heinous crimes But it's not true.
0: Catherine was extremely complicit and encouraging and she would direct David on what to do to the girls as he was raping them. She was a driving force. Force, yeah.
1: Like it's just, no, we're not having it. Mm -mm. So David was heartbroken when the letters from Catherine stopped coming. Prison doctors prescribed him antidepressants in order to help him cope with all of this.
0: Oh, poor David. I know,
1: bless him, right? Um... So, after the closure of Fremantle Prison, David was moved to... I haven't even tried to say this prison name before. Casorina? Casorina Prison? Where he would spend the remainder of his days. So, in 2005, David was once again in trouble. This time for the sexual assault of another inmate. When officers went through his computer, yes... This man had access What's to a computer in prison. I mean, so it is beyond me that he had his own computer. Living the life of Riley, isn't he? <laughs> anyway, when investigators went through the computer, they found pornographic images. And because of this, his computer privileges were taken away. Rightly so. I mean, you couldn't make it up. I, I just can't with any of these people. Mm-hmm. So on the 7th of October 2005, at 54 years of age, David Burney dies by suicide by hanging himself using a sheet in his prison cell. His body went unclaimed by family or friends and he was buried by the state in an unmarked grave.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. Catherine Burney runs the prison library
0: at Bandia Prison. Which sick. is peggers' belief. For fuck's sake, literally the only imagine way to go. going to and get that? a few books, true crime, just checking out some true crime books from Catherine Burney. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Exactly. So she also starred in the prison's production of the comedy musical Nonsense, which I just cannot fathom, any of this stuff. Crikey. So apparently she speaks in a very childish voice, which I thought was interesting as we learned in the Gypsy Rose case that childhood trauma can lead adults to speaking yeah. with these baby oh, voices. Yeah. Um, we heard, obviously earlier through you, that Kath had a very traumatic childhood. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a really interesting fact that she speaks with mm-hmm. that kind of baby voice. It is said that she used to write letters to none other than Myra Hindley. Yeah, That's insane. Who, for those of you who maybe are not aware, was part of a killer couple here in the UK. She <laughs> was also secretly helping another killer couple stay in contact. So Jessica Staskinowski and Valerie Parashumty, known as the Wheelieburn Killers, were a killer, killer couple who brutally murdered 16-year-old Stacy Mitchell. The pair were purposely separated to different prisons as part of their sentencing, um, and they were not allowed to have contact. However, Catherine was believed to have been secretly helping them remain in contact through letter writing. Mm. I know. She's a right dirty dog. Isn't In Australia, there was a law in place that murder convicts were automatically put forward for parole every three years once their sentencing allowed it. So although Catherine's parole was denied time and time again, she was still always eligible for a parole every three years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Survivor Kate Marr, horrified by this law, began a petition in 2016 advocating for the rights of the victims of these types of horrific crimes. She claims that the three-year cycle of parole eligibility is re-traumatizing for the, their, the killer's mm-hmm. victims, mm-hmm. Um, And their families. Yeah, of course. So her petition was listened to and it's points taken on board. So then in 2018, the Western Australian Attorney General John Quigley announced that the law was being changed and that killers like Catherine Burney would now have to wait six years between applying for parole. Good. However, none of this applies to Catherine directly as in 2009, following pressure from the families of her victims... Catherine, like David before, received a stamp on her records by then Western Australian Attorney General Christian Porter, marking her as never to be released. Amazing. She was the third woman in Australian history to receive the never to be released mark on her files. Her appeal on this decision was denied in 2010 and again in 2016, the same year that Kate Moore began her petition. Catherine's family have struggled throughout their lives due to their association with their mother. This is something that we've spoken about before, and I'm sure we'll talk about it time and time again. But it is heart-wrenching thinking about all these victims. Mm -hmm. And her children and other relatives are victims Mm -hmm. too. So in a really sad interview with one of her sons, who goes by Peter, although I believe this may be an alias, he tells how he endured years of abuse and bullying growing up. He was just five years old when she abandoned the family to run off with David. He tells stories of how he was so badly beaten um, one time that all of his teeth were knocked out and he was rendered unconscious. Oh
0: God, that's awful.
1: Horrendous. And this Poor is thing. just because it was his mother's of course. crimes. This is
0: what I mean is what they do it to their children. They got zero thought for anybody else. They're victims, yeah. their, child, their own families. Awful. Yeah.
1: And it, like, look, it kills me as well that you, cannot, like, you can't help what you're born into, like a nice family, a horrible family, mm-hmm. just like you can't help being born into a rich family, a poor family, of or course. wherever, you know? Anyway, I digress. Look, Peter says that his mother has written to himself and his siblings looking for their forgiveness and support, saying how much she would love to see them. But he thinks and that, and this is in his pr- thought sh- process now, is mm-hmm. that she's just an actor who wants to use them as leverage if ever she gets the chance for parole, that they will be there to take responsibility for her and therefore make it easier for her to be released. Peter has supported Kate Moore's petition for her new for the new law on parole and has even claimed that he would support and celebrate a call for his mother's execution. Wow. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, police strongly believe the Burnies are responsible for <laughs> other murders and they um, had, you know, as we know, a very firmly established, very recognisable M.O., which police believed matched other murders, including those of Cheryl Renwick in May 1986 and Barbara Weston in June 1986. Mm-hmm. Yep. Timescales fit. Exactly. Exactly. But despite lack of evidence, police do say they are almost positive David had killed others and that Kathy knew about them, but she has still to this day remained tight-lipped. And obviously as now David is dead, and Catherine seems to be keeping those secrets to herself, will likely never know the truth. But it's not the first time we've heard of other killer couples, and I know we've sprinkled a few in throughout this episode, and it's not the first time killer couples who are convicted of murders are still suspected of many others. Which leads me nicely on to some examples of other killer couples. Now a very obvious one I'm going to have to mention with another infamous address takes us over to Gloucester, England to 25 Cromwell Street aka the House of Horrors. Here evil married couple Fred and Rose West picked up young women waiting for buses or hitchhiking um Mm. and then would take them back to their house you know either become friends with them or you know engage in sexual relations with them and sexually assault torture murder now fred and rose had also been known to bring a knife out in the car just like david and Catherine bernie in order to subdue their victims and they would commit the most horrendous mutilations and tortures that would go on for incredibly long length of time just like the bernies they even killed their own 15 year old daughter and buried her under the patio that was heather and raiding the house of horrors in 92 police found nine bodies buried around under different floors mostly in the basement as well as three other bodies in separate locations to the house so they killed at least 12 altogether and fred the wuss that he is, just like David Burney, also hung himself in prison in 1995. Yeah, Rose is still out. Exactly. Absolute coward. Rose is still alive and is one of the only women in the country to ever receive a whole life term. The other one who is still alive, who has one, is Joanna Dennehy. Mm-hmm. Exactly, who we covered. And I want to say episode three. You I are barely right. remember that. It is episode three. <laughs> and the only other one being part of another famous killer couple being Miss Myra Hindley. And Ian Brady... Oh, I found it. Episode 18 and 19. Oh, there we go. (laughs) So they would uh, lure young victims into their car in Manchester, England in the 1960s, drive them to the moors where they would rape, torture and kill them, or sometimes to their own house and then bury them on the moors. Both Hindley and Brady have since died in prison, but police believe at least Brady is certainly guilty of more murders. Four of the victims' bodies were found at different times on the moors. Sadly, little 11-year-old Keith Bennett has still to this day never been found. Brady crue- cruelly took the secret of his br- burial location to the grave with him. Very similar M.O. to the Bernies. these two. Yeah, so similar. So similar. Um, Now, another one I'm going to throw in is Michael Fournier. <laughs> He's a French serial killer. You French accent, That is my French accent. He's a French serial killer who, along with his wife, murdered 12 victims in France and oh Belgium God. between 1987 and 2003. 12? Mm hmm. They met at least, they think there's more. They met via a prison pen pal program whilst he was incarcerated for a sexual assault. He'd tell her, his new pen pal, of can his fantasies. Can we just stop
1: prison prison pen pal? I, can we just?
0: Maybe. Well, okay. 100%. And marriages. We've said this before. We'll say it again. Yeah. So they their fantasies um, together were to rape and murder young virginal women. And Monique said she would help him do this if he killed her current husband which she didn't actually carry out in the end. So she got mugged off. But together, <laughs> they committed these abductions. Stop. Exactly. But they committed these abductions and these murders. So he was only caught when Monique actually grasped on him after she saw a female accomplice of Belgium murderer, Marc Dutois, get a long sentence. So she got scared and she grasped him up. She snitched on him,
1: so they weren't going to be caught except for that she.
0: No, so far, they weren't getting caught. Got, uh, she basically saw Mark Dutroit, who was another killer couple, and had loads of killer accomplices. She got a really heavy sentence, and that was around the same time, in the same area, so it kind of scared her. So she took a preemptive strike, thinking it would help her, and confessed to everything. But she, um, he got life without parole, and she got twenty eight years. So there's one more I'm going to put in, which is Charles Starkweather. He's an American spree killer who murdered eleven people in Nebraska and Wyoming between 1957 and 58 with his 14-year-old girlfriend Carol Ann Fugate. He was a nasty piece of work. You mean
1: his 14-year-old victim? Because well, actually, yes, yeah, exactly. In
0: the 50s, though, it was a lot more. They allowed it, didn't they? A lot more. Yeah. So he was a nasty piece of work. He like shot families. He clubbed a two-year-old baby to death. Jesus. He was a real violent psychopath, was Charlie. So he received a death sentence and he was executed in a, the electric chair, old Sparky, 17 months later and Carol Ann received 17 years in prison. So I think I'm going to leave it at that. I have got quite a few more, but I feel like we've talked for about two hours and you guys probably are sick of us. So, Surely not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so on that note, guys, I think that brings us to the end of another killer couple um Catherine and David Barney. Did you almost forget who we I were talking almost about? Did. I was like, who am I talking about?
1: What, what are we doing? Yes. Um please don't forget to follow, rate, and review us on Spotify and or Apple. Um, share us with your friends on
0: socials, talk yes. about us, anything would be great. that would be so good, guys. Thank you. And also follow us on our Instagram, our Facebook, our X, is it called? And what else is there? that's it really isn't it
1: mm-hmm. Facebook TikTok
0: Facebook. oh yeah TikTok there you go so um, on that note guys I hope you have a fantastic week ahead we'll see you next week for episode 47 yeah and once again welcome to
1: 2024 yes alright bye guys see you next week bye bye